This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, July 22, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. How Nancy McLean characterizes the people who inspired and may not have inspired economics Nobel laureate James Buchanan should be a matter of great interest to readers of her book, Democracy in Chains. Bill Magnus is a visiting professor of history at Berry College. We spoke this week about Democracy in Chains and how history ought to be done. You have written about... Uh, democracy in chains uh, on numerous occasions. Give us the the thirty thousand foot view of the book itself. Is it? I mean, is it as bad as people like uh, Michael Munger and others have said that he calls it a work of historical speculative fiction? And it, it, is that as a historian and and rather than an economist, is that fair? Yeah, I'd absolutely say it's fair. And I do come at the book as a historian, although I'm, I'm more of an economic historian, so I tend to work in that realm of the intersection of the two disciplines. Uh, but uh, you know, one of the ways I've characterized it, it's almost a disaster from cover to cover. And I say that on the grounds of historical methods. She abuses evidence. Uh, she makes up claims that aren't supported in any of her footnotes or any of her uh, material that she brings to bear, uh, which I think is uh, is completely destructive to what we do as historians in trying to interpret the past. But uh, further and even more pronounced beyond that, she's fundamentally unfamiliar with the history of public choice and some of the details of who Buchanan was, uh, what his life entailed, some of the thinkers that he's engaged with uh, throughout his multi-decade career. So who are some of the thinkers that, that you're, in your view, uh, she's just either left out or puffed up? Right. I think there's uh, examples of both of them. Uh, the most pronounced one and she begins this with the introduction to the book. There's like a, um, a a preview that she gives of her argument. And it's devoted to linking John C. Calhoun, the pro-slavery senator and uh, political theorist from the 19th century, into the public choice tradition. And she calls him the intellectual lodestar of public choice. And James Buchanan, who's the main subject of her book, intends to weave together this uh, this kind of lengthy, almost conspiracy theory that uh, Calhoun is lurking in the background of public choice thought. Well, the interesting thing here is if you look at the entirety of uh, James Buchanan's work, you look at the uh, majority of what's been published in the public choice tradition, and Calhoun is an almost non-existent figure. There are uh, a few examples of people who have engaged Calhoun's political theory, and she cites one of them, uh, but she doesn't really go into the depth of the article or understand its arguments. But... uh, it, this is some someone who's well outside of uh, what we consider the mainstream public choice tradition and certainly doesn't exert any uh, discernible influence upon James Buchanan's thought. Uh, really what's going on is McLean is kind of mistaking uh, the fact that both Calhoun in the 19th century is writing a lengthy commentary on James Madison's contributions to the uh, Federalist Papers and the uh, formation of the Constitution. Well, James Buchanan and the Calculus of Consent is is basically responding to Madison as well. So she sees these similar uh, themes of responses to Madison and developments on Madisonian theory and kind of comes to this aha moment and says, well, John C. Calhoun must be lurking in the backdrop of uh, Buchanan's thought. And as a result, uh, we can treat the public choice tradition that emerges out of Buchanan as essentially like this, this Calhounite conspiracy to uh, suppress American democracy. And she actually talks in these terms, refers to it as like this fifth column movement that's trying to destroy American democracy, although she has really peculiar ideas of what that even means. It, it's sort of a correlation but not causation. That is, Calhoun and Buchanan were both 
deeply uh, writing about the American founding, about rules, about the what constitutions are supposed to do, how they how constitutions even arise. And so is she just seeing similarities between the uh, kinds of subject matter that these that Buchanan and Calhoun are dealing with? Yeah, say similarities, but they're very superficial similarities. It's the fact that both of them talk about tyrannies of majority. Uh, both of them talk about checks and balances and uh, mechanisms of the Constitution that prevent any uh, one branch from uh, basically driving the government, seizing control of the government at a given point. So this is this is basic Madisonian theory that she's engaging with. And that both Buchanan and Calhoun and their different methods at different points in history have talked about. She says, well, the fact that they're uh, discussing a similar subject matter somehow proves that they're connected when there's no evidence, there's no uh, historical documentation that Buchanan ever even engaged Calhoun or or, uh, did anything substantive with his his work. It's just uh, kind of an argument from absence that uh, she wraps into this uh, imaginary uh, connection that she's kind of dreamt up. If Calhoun is pumped up in a way, who is left out? Well, that's the interesting thing. So there's a a, a foray that she goes into. Uh, so part, one, of, one of the arguments she makes in the book from a historical point is that uh, Buchanan's early work on public choice at the University of Virginia is motivated by the resistance to Brown versus Board or is kind of providing this intellectual backdrop to the uh, pro-segregation movement in Virginia politics in the 1950s. So that's a big theme in there and, and you know, it's kind of a convenient argument to uh, try and connect Buchanan to someone like Calhoun whose uh, you know, main contribution to history is a pro-slavery theorist. Well, she updates this as well in trying to present what she claims is an intellectual history of Buchanan's own background. He, he comes out of Tennessee. He's a, uh, a, um, a son of a rural poor farmer. Uh, who works his way through university, gets to the University of Chicago, becomes a distinguished economist in his own right. But uh, it's kind of an up from poverty story. Well, McLean imports into this uh, this story uh, a group of thinkers that were at uh, Vanderbilt University in the 1920s and 30s, uh, sometimes referred to them as the Southern Agrarians. They wrote a uh, book in 1930 called I'll Take My Stand that's basically a, uh, a manifesto type uh, narrative in defense of the Southern rural way of life, but it's also a pro-segregation group of thinkers. There are several of the contributors there uh, made arguments over the course of their careers in favor of segregation and against federal uh, reaching down into the local school systems and things like that to uh, enforce uh, court orders like Brown. So uh, McLean tries to import the uh, agrarian segregationists into Buchanan's thought and the interesting thing here is there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that I can find either in the sources that she cites or a, a, a more broad um, historical look at Buchanan's work that uh, Buchanan was even aware of these thinkers at the time. She's attributing uh, a major intellectual influence to him. And I'll quote here from the, from the book. She says that uh, one of the cultural projects that attracted James Buchanan, he wanted to go to Vanderbilt University. He says one of the cultural projects that attracted him there uh, stamped his vision of the good society and the just state, and that's the Southern agrarians. Later, she identifies one by name. She says uh, the agrarian kind of ringleader is a fellow by the name of Donald Davidson who uh, writes several pro-segregation pieces uh, throughout the course of his career, and she describes him as, quote, the Nashville writer who seemed most decisive in Jim Buchanan's emerging intellectual system. These are pretty bold intellectual claims that she's uh, stating of influence, and she does Davidson in particular for one reason, and that is that Davidson 
invoked Thomas Hobbes' famous metaphor, the Leviathan, to critique the New Deal government, to critique federal overreach in the 1930s and 40s. And he adapted this into some of his arguments against uh, segregation as well. And of, and of course, James Buchanan himself dealt a great deal with uh, Hobbes. Right, right. Hobbes is probably one of the most cited political thinkers in the uh, the corpus of James Buchanan's work. Um, I've tried to do a uh, just a rough uh, count of the number of times he appears in the index, and there's there are between seventy and eighty distinct uh, references to Thomas Hobbes in Buchanan's body of collected works. Uh, he's also a major thinker that that Buchanan consistently engages in several of his his books and essays. Um, Hobbes is also the origin point for a, a famous concept from Buchanan's economics, and that's the, the notion of the Leviathan model, which he applies to taxation and other assumptions about government. What do we do if we uh, assume government acts in a certain way and in these certain parameters? And it's, a, you know, it's an overarching kind of nightmare state that emerges out of some of the public choice tradition. But Buchanan uses this conceptual model to tease out the economic implications. So it's all over Buchanan's work, and it's very, very clearly, explicitly referred back to Thomas Hobbes and everything that began his writing on the subject. So what McLean does, though, here is a really interesting kind of trick. She imports Davidson, who has no uh, record of citation, no um, reference, no documentation that he has anything to do whatsoever, period, with James Buchanan, or at least none that I've found and certainly none that McLean cites. So she imports Davidson and attributes this notion of the Leviathan to Davidson in place of Thomas Hobbes and through the process, she's almost by accident excised and expunged Thomas Hobbes's um, uh, influence and role in James Buchanan's thought. So I'm saying as a work of intellectual history, you know, our, our object as historians is to try to understand how these thinkers came to their beliefs, came to their uh, principles, who they were engaging with and doing so honestly. If we look to Buchanan's works, there's ample evidence that Thomas Hobbes is all over the place. And yet here's this claimed – uh, book that, that purports to be intellectual history. She's uh, managed to almost by accident drop Thomas Hobbes and import this thinker, this obscure uh, segregationist thinker that uh, Buchanan never even references, doesn't seem to be aware of, doesn't seem to be engaged with in any meaningful way. How typical is that of uh, historians? I mean, historians are uh, dealing with subjects that they themselves might not well understand at the, at the beginning, be it uh, economics or uh, political theory, and it seems like the the problem here, uh, at least the ones you've identified, are problems with grappling with these giants of political theory like Madison or Hobbes. Right, right. So I'd say the uh, one of the key tools that uh, the historian brings to his or her method is uh, kind of a methodological fidelity to the evidence, and that could be the evidence wherever it leads. Normally, this involves digging in archives. It involves reading secondary texts that try to contextualize a figure that they're studying. Um, I've done a lot of work on Abraham Lincoln in particular uh, as one of my own research areas. I'm mostly 19th century economic historian where it interacts with uh, political history. So one of the things that I do is I, I hit the archives. I try to find documents that are uh, connected to the various figures that are being engaged in an event. And what you're trying to do is to piece together a story, piece together uh, a um, uh, basically a, a lineage of the events as they unfold that and in the best context that we can provide, try to understand what happened, try to interpret what happened. So fidelity to basic evidence is, uh, is one of the key methods of the trade 
And what I see here in McLean is kind of an inversion of that method, uh, an inversion of that approach. She basically had this this, uh, this theory of how what she refers to as the political right arose in American history and uh, shapes uh, the course of political events from roughly the mid-20th century to today. Uh, she's coming from a very left progressive tradition. Uh, that's her background. That's her own politics. Um, but the interesting thing about uh, – uh, her politics is that she tries to import them into the past in very pronounced ways. And in doing so, she's kind of crafted what I refer to as almost like a conspiracy theory uh, version of how the political right supposedly arose across the 20th century. Uh, this is something that she crafted and wrote out uh, in some of her previous works. But uh, there's a missing figure in her conspiracy theory. There's the uh, the intellectual conspiracy master behind it. And she somehow grappled on to James Buchanan's name and has kind of imported him post hoc into this conspiracy she had already planned out in her mind. So rather than using evidence to try and interpret Buchanan's own world and how he, he saw his own work, how it uh, emerged, who he was engaging with, she's almost like shoehorning Buchanan into this preconceived narrative that she's already constructed. In her own comments about the responses that you have uh, written, that people like Michael Munger, Donald Boudreau, or uh, others have have written, uh, she has said, or is it, or is believed to have said, uh, at least uh, quoted by uh, other people who seem to agree with her, which is that uh, this is a cons- a coordinated attack on this perfectly good. Uh, work, right, right. So, and yeah, I guess a little context for uh, for listeners. She sent out uh, an email. Uh, this is probably about a week after the book came out when it's starting to be criticized um, on my blog, on some other uh, websites. Mike published his review uh, with the Independent Review. So, some of the early uh, feedback is coming out about the book. And what McLean does is she sent out an email. Rather than responding to some of these deep and profound and substantive criticisms about her use of evidence or her misunderstanding of the material, she alleges that there's this coordinated conspiracy to manipulate Google rankings and manipulate her Amazon.com reviews and to alter her Wikipedia page uh, to basically trash this book and suppress it. And it has all the usual signs of uh, kind of a, this far-left political uh, mobilization. So it's uh, the Koch brothers are obviously a central player in the conspiracy. Um, she, she claims basically without evidence that uh, uh, there are people trying to manipulate her Google rankings by paying Google to suppress favorable stories and promote links that are uh, critical of the book, which if you know anything about Google, you can't do that. Uh, but, or, or we'd be a lot wealthier if we could. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So uh, it, it's it's just kind of uh, out of um, complete left field, um, almost almost a paranoid adaptation of the response to this. And interestingly, as she's making this argument, uh, the, this notion of the conspiracy, she's almost completely sidestepping uh, multiple attempts to get her to engage and respond. Uh, to some of the problems that have been pointed out with the book. So the uh, the first uh, short review that I wrote was published on a uh, website called the History News Network, which I write for for time to time. It's a very mainstream uh, kind of news aggregator where historians go to engage each other on the current scholarship in the field. It's uh, uh, widely read across the profession. It probably leans a little left of center. Uh, so when I published my piece, the editor of the site reached out to her and gave her an open invitation, says, we'd, we'd like you to respond. We'll run your response. 
editor contacted me and asked me if I'd be okay with this. And I said, absolutely. I'd encourage it. I want to hear her response. So two weeks go by and there's nothing. She doesn't uh, even indicate uh, that you know she's interested in engaging this particular idea. But instead, just out of the blue, this email goes out to dozens of her historian friends claiming that there's a conspiracy against her. So it's a uh, direct deflection of some of the norms of scholarship, which is critical engagement, a critical back and forth about the content of the book in favor of trying to, uh, you know, kind of play the victim and claim that uh, the book's being attacked and suppressed and treated unfairly by people who are are parts of this uh, evil manipulative conspiracy to uh, uh, to basically undo her work and, and uh, I guess, prop up Buchanan uh, contra to what she claims. Jesse Walker wrote a book a few years ago, and uh, I believe it was called "The United States of Paranoia," and it's about it's about conspiracy theories in the United States and the history of them. Some of them were extremely popular conspiracies uh, or theories, anyway, believed by, as polling might have indicated, a majority of Americans. Exactly. So, so is there is there a history of this this kind of uh, tack where it, it appears, at least if you're correct, if uh, others are uh, correct who have criticized the book, that the the narrative was established well before the facts filled that in. Yeah, I think absolutely. It is a conspiratorial narrative. Uh, she sees Buchanan, she calls him an evil genius and like this mastermind uh, who's coming behind uh, pretty much everything she dislikes about American politics. Uh, some of it uh, quite legitimate things to dislike, like segregation. Uh, but she also goes in and tries to wrap him into uh, uh, the Pinochet regime in Chile. Uh, the fact that he attended a one-week academic conference, I think, in 1980, proves that he was part of a conspiracy to rewrite the Chilean constitution. Uh, but this common recurring type, uh, I'd even go so far as to say abusive evidence to uh, prop up the, the, the narratives of the conspiracy plays uh, throughout her work. And she does it even at points that uh, she omits and overlooks and sets aside evidence that would violate her version of the conspiracy. So uh, one that I, I've cited and written a little bit about is in her effort to cast Buchanan as this kind of secret segregationist who's propping up the Virginia resistance to Brown versus Board in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, well, she has a problem in evidence because Buchanan never really wrote anything about Brown. He didn't directly engage the case. And uh, the very slim body of work that uh, she even enlists is mostly about early uh, theories of school vouchers that he's writing on in the time. Uh, she sees school vouchers as part of the conspiracy to prop up uh, segregation as something that's almost inherently racist in her view. So she's on very tenuous ground when she's making this claim in the first place. But not only that, she omits evidence that would run against the conspiracy. And the primary case there is that in 1965, when Buchanan's at the University of Virginia, he's the director of the Thomas Jefferson Center there, which is a, kind of an economics uh, uh, academic institute that uh, consisted of him, Ronald Coe, several prominent economists are working in the center at the time. But they regularly recruited uh, visiting professors from around the world to come in and do one- and two-year stints in the department. And in 1965, one of the professors that uh, Buchanan recruits is a, uh, a fellow by the name of William H. Hutt, who was an economist from the University of Cape Town who had just retired in South Africa. Well, Hutt's uh, claim to fame, if you know him, anything from the libertarian intellectual tradition, he's an early uh, fellow traveler of the public choice school, but his claim to fame is he took public choice concepts and used them to critique the apartheid regime 
that was uh, emerging in South Africa during his time there. He actually got into a fight with the South African government. Uh, at one point, they seized his passport to prevent him from traveling to academic conferences abroad because he was kind of blowing the whistle on this racist regime that's being put in place. And it's a fundamentally public choice argument because he's saying that apartheid is used to uh, prop up a minority in the white labor force at the expense of black people. So very, very clear parallels to segregation and what's going on in Virginia. Buchanan brings this guy in in 1965 to the center that supposedly, according to the conspiracy, propping up segregation. Uh, and Hutt goes on a lecture tour talking about apartheid and the evils that that brought to the South African government. Not only that, Hutt starts to notice that segregation that he's seeing around him in the southern states has very similar themes to what he grew up with and what he knew from South Africa. So he writes a short article, I think it was in uh, Modern Age or something at the time, where he specifically points to Southern segregation and says, hey, some of the same themes that we see in South Africa are also playing out in the United States. Uh, uh, calls it horrible, dissects some of the uh, political economy behind it and, and condemns it in very, very harsh terms. Well, the interesting thing here is Hutt is almost completely omitted from uh, McLean's story. She references him one single time. And her uh, portrayal of it is completely distorted. She says Buchanan brought in Hutt obviously to argue against labor unions and she cites this back to a decades-old book that Hutt had written criticizing labor unions. That's not the case at all. What's really happening is she's omitting evidence that shows Hutt as an anti-segregationist under Buchanan's sponsorship at the University of Virginia at a time when she's trying to present Buchanan as this uh, person who's propping up the segregationist conspiracy. Assuming you're not part of a coordinated conspiracy, and, and assuming I'm not <laughs> a part of a coordinated conspiracy right. <laughs> talking to you for uh, this recording, does uh, do these criticisms ultimately, do you think that they will play a role in altering the currency that uh, this book will have to people who are dedicated to the, the narrative that she's laid out? Right, right. I think it is a book that's written for true believers in that sense. Uh, people who already believe the conspiracy will see this and see it uh, as something that confirms their existing biases. Uh, the big question is, uh, you know, how far does that extend? I think there are substantive grounds that we can critique this book uh, for really slipshod uh, academic practices. And that includes abusing, omitting, even distorting quotes and evidence in ways to, um, to, to alter the plain meaning of uh, where that evidence would support as a historical interpretation. I see that as dangerous for scholarship if we move in the conspiratorial route, which McLean has um, unfortunately kind of taken us down the direction of in her response in particular to her critics. But uh, at the same time, I think in the long run, uh, at least some modicum of uh, scholarly standards will um, eventually win out. Um, I think it, it's something that if you scrutinize this book through the evidentiary practices that we expect from the highest levels of scholarship, it's really, really difficult to defend a lot of the moves that she makes. How often do these kind of books come along? How often are are we presented with, you know, this is popular history for one, right? And that's what it's meant to be. Um, how often are we presented with those kinds of stories that, uh, if you're correct, just don't hold up? Right, right. Well, I'd say if we look to uh, – I guess there's two areas to look. And the first is kind of on the on the, uh, the political realm. Books of these types pop up all the time from the left and the right as well. Um, they have a very distinct conspiratorial style. 
Uh, some of uh, the listeners may know uh, Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine, was uh, the, the big popular uh, attack on libertarianism uh, that came out in the last decade. And she made similar claims about Milton Friedman uh, that are very conspiratorial. She tries to implicate him in all sorts of, of uh, evil motives um, throughout his economic career that are almost like a, a bad caricature of it. Um, unfortunately, some of these books do gain legs and they, uh, they last from time to time. But uh, I think in the long run, uh, the intellectual permanence of them does eventually succumb to uh, rigorous scrutiny. Uh, the second example that I compare it to, uh, there was a book written uh, a little over a decade ago by a uh, historian by the name of Michael Belial. Uh, it's entitled Arming America, and there's been some comparison between McLean and Belial. Uh, this was basically a book that argued that during the founding era, um, ownership of private firearms uh, – is kind of mythical. It's, it's something that was uh, grossly overstated uh, by modern political interpretants of the founding era. Uh, and he basically says that, uh, you know, firearm ownership is, um, is something that's exaggerated in history to prop up this new reinterpretation that he says exists around the Second Amendment. Well, the problem with Belial's book is it was scrutinized first by uh, Second Amendment defenders, but then eventually by more and more historians, and they noticed some similar patterns. He was making up evidence or some of the sources he cited didn't say what he actually claimed that they say um, in the way that he presented the book. So um, uh, eventually over a couple of years of scrutiny, it resulted in a major academic scandal. It caused the book to be withdrawn from uh, the publisher. It caused um, a major book prize that was awarded to it uh, to be withdrawn. And this came all about because of the discovery of slipshod and in some cases almost it seemed like intentionally abusive uses of evidence. And I think we're way too early in the, uh, the McQueen story to say where it's going to play out, but there are at least uh, a few instances where she's used evidence in ways that I would argue um, are quite similar. Uh, and that includes making claims that are not backed by their footnotes or making claims that are uh, uh, contradictory to what the actual sources she cites uh, state. So uh, that pattern certainly there. Uh, what does it mean for the staying power? Well, actually, uh, I'll turn to Buchanan. And this is something that Buchanan used to say to uh, all of his students when he was uh, lecturing at George Mason, which uh, my alma mater, uh, but also uh, something that uh, is a recurring theme of his intellectual career. He'd always advise the students, you know, when you do scholarly research, you aren't writing for the next uh, day. You aren't writing for the current debate. You're writing for the ages. And the scholars that matter are those that write for the ages. Uh, McLean's book does not seem to be written for the ages. It's a book for the current political debate. And one of the problems that emerges from it is that uh, by a, kind of tailoring her argument to this conspiratorial idea that she has about modern politics, she's missed a great opportunity to investigate an interesting part of intellectual history and, in fact, done it a great disservice by distorting that history. So uh, what does it mean for the ages? Well, I'd venture to say that, you know, a decade from now, a half century, a century from now, this view, uh, this book is going to be looked upon as something uh, very disfavorable and something that's uh, almost discrediting to a moment in the historian's profession in the early 21st century. Phil Magnus is an incoming visiting assistant professor of economics at Barry College. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 